0: Welcome, welcome to the second episode of Star Wars Untold Stories, an entertainment weekly podcast covering all things the galaxy far, far away. I'm editor at large, James Hibbard. I'm here with TV critic, Darren Franich. And we have a lot to cover today. There are, there are two more episodes of The Mandalorian that I've aired. Um, EW has this big Rise of Skywalker cover story, going behind the scenes of the new film that's now online. And I've been spending every night playing the new game Jedi Fallen Order, and I just want to rant and rave about that. But let's start with Mandalorian, because we've now seen episodes two and three. Um, Darren, what is your... Dealing on Mando at
1: this point. Um, You know, James, we talked about this a little bit in our first episode, how at that time we'd only seen uh, the premiere episode of The Mandalorian. And, you know, James, as a TV critic, sometimes you watch a show, you see only one episode, you draw a lot of conclusions about it, and then you see a few more and you're kind of like, oh, I I was wrong, there's more going on here, you know, I'm I'm glad that I kept up with it. That has not been my experience with The Mandalorian so far. I still think it's kind of a Snooze to be honest with you, but I really? will. I will say. I will say. Um, Why do what's, you hate Baby Yoda so much? Well, what's interesting to me about the Mandalorian is the one thing that's really working for me is Baby Yoda, and I I I I would love to hear from everybody because um what I've kind of found in general, and obviously I, I want to hear all your thoughts on Episode Two and Episode Three, is that like. Everyone, well, at least to everyone our age and older, um, and, you know, we're very old now at this point, everyone's very aware that there's, like, a cheapness attached to taking Yoda, who was already a very cute character, and just doing a baby version of him. You know, it's like we're now in the kind of Yoshi's Island, Baby Mario phase of this franchise. But I think everyone's kind of cool with that, and I feel the same way. Um, so I'm, I'm very pro-baby Yoda. The rest, I'm not so sure about. How did you feel about the third episode, which, for me, the third episode was kind of the story really beginning. I, I kind of feel like we're now kind of getting a real sense of what is the overall look of this season and even kind of the world around Mando. I, I think it's coming a little bit more into focus, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, we definitely now have a sense of what the arc of, of the season is going to be um, with Mando going against uh, and defying this 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 mysterious remnant, you know faction of of the empire. Um, you know, we still haven't seen uh, Giancarlo Esposito's uh, villain yet. Um, uh yeah, you know, so, so, so presumably he'll be coming in pretty shortly now that this has escalated to this point. Um, I have some big swings about this show because to me, I loved episode two. I thought episode two was fantastic. I thought it was, you know, so much better than the first episode. I, I, it was everything I wanted.
1: It's because you hate Jawas, three. James. It's because you hate Jawas so much. You've been waiting <laughs> really, to see. You've been waiting see to see someone vaporize <laughs> yeah. Jawas for all these years, and finally, the Mandalorian delivered.
0: <laughs> but episode three, not so much. I was, but let's let's do do the first one first. I mean, the first eleven minutes of episode two had no dialogue, and I love that because I didn't even miss it. I, I, I literally got to that eleventh minute and went, "Wait, there's been no dialogue, and it's completely worked." The Sandcrawler chase, uh, it was like something out of Indiana Jones, as a lot of critics pointed out. You know, it was funny. It was suspenseful. It was, you know, it it was well done. Um, You know, the level of comedy and weirdness with the Jawas, it it, like added to their mythology without kind of messing it up, which I thought was cool. Um, You know, the Mudhorn creature scene, you know, went on a bit long, but and. And by the way, a lot of people had some confusion about that because no, it's not the same as the horned creature in Attack of the Clones, because everything in Mandalorian has to be the same, but different than something in the previous <laughs> previous movies. But my favorite bit about it, and I'm just going to geek out on this for a moment, was the egg reveal, because, you know, he's going after the egg and what you're thinking, it's going to be some metaphor for something. It's going to be some, you know, you, you know mystical object. It's going to be some item of, of importance and no, they literally just wanted to eat an egg. And, and to me, that was a moment that kind of elevated this show above its origins because George Lucas would not have made it just an egg. And if he had made it just an egg, you know, you know, if he had just made it a gourmet snack, he would have had he wouldn't have been able to resist adding a line in, of exposition in there like. The Javas revere the mudhorn egg yolk for its, you know, sacred delicateness or for their tribe or whatever. You know, I like that Mando just shook his head. It's inexplicable. And he walks away. I, I, th- I thought that was absolutely true.
1: Yeah, well, and also, too, just the effect of them opening the egg was so kind of, um, you know, it, it was the kind of prosthetic quality of older special effects. I shouldn't say older special effects, but it was just like, you know, it, it was it was that kind of goopiness that I think you kind of miss a little bit with the CGI. Because, um, yeah, I don't know, the whole kind of monster fight in that sh- uh, episode, I did not think was even really shot so well. As you said, it kind of went on a little long. Um, uh, well, let's, but let's talk about about, so the egg thing is very funny. That's the kind of treasure of the Sierra Madre version of this show, where you're kind of building up to something big, and it turns out to be something kind of small and goofy, and I like that. But James, how do you feel about the fact that this show seems to be about how the Empire is bad and Baby Yoda uses the force and is good. Like I that seems it seems like we've been on a long walk to get to something that feels kind of familiar. And even like, I don't know, Baby Yoda using the force the way he used it that kind of gave me almost strange flashbacks to just the whole idea of like the force being a thing that kids can use i, I get some slight anakin skywalker vibes from that and i'm not talking about like cool anakin skywalker i'm talking about young Annie flying around in a-, in a pod race so i, I don't know I-, I i struggle with the force stuff but are, are you kind of right. cool with i mean he's he's basically like like a-, a-, a young super kid using the force and the empire wants to get him Which is, I guess that's just that's different from what I was expecting from this show, which seemed like initially it was going to be more about like we're on the margins of society. It seems like the Star Wars story, actually.
0: (laughs) Um, uh, Real quick pause here. There's a lot of crackling on your end of of the audio. Is is uh, is there anything that's like not plugged in all the way or anything in terms of there's crackling? Yeah, um, yeah. No, oh, is is it the shirt mic that's recording it? What's what's what, what's recording what what I'm hearing over my headphones? Just
1: the t, just the uh, computer. Oh, um, just the computer. Okay, yeah.
0: then. There's, there's there's probably nothing to be done. Okay,
1: I'll, I'll just. Um, qu- quick question. You guys, uh, are you hearing any crackling on my audio side? Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, let's see. Yeah, though though we were told that baby Yoda is like 50 years old. So maybe it's not the same as, as like, uh, you know, you know, you know, 12 year old Annie being able to fly, you know, the, the do well in the pod race. So, you know, so maybe it's more like, um, you know, uh, He's like Quigon, a Qui Gon, you know. At, at this point, you know. So, <laughs> oh, okay, you know, but, well then, well, but just but never really mind. cute and silent. I'm
1: totally on board. Never mind, yeah. I'm, I'm totally yeah. on board. Um, yeah. Well, but so okay. So, episode two, you know, that was an episode that I think, as you were saying, leaned heavy into this idea of going a little bit more dialogue-free. Episode three, um, which uh, arrived on, today on the day that we're recording this episode, um, you know, you had you watched it before I did, and all that you told me was that there was a lot going on with, like, people in helmets talking in this episode, and this right. this was, like, the full-fledged, like, we meet the Mandalorian cabal Episode. Uh, how did you feel in general about, because again, you know, it's interesting to me just seeing how this show is very much not um, what I was expecting, because Mando is not a lone wolf at all. He actually, it turns out, has a whole community of people around a whole him. pack, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly, exactly.
0: A pack <laughs> of lone wolves. Um, I came away from that feeling like the less time spent in the Mandalorian community center, the better. <laughs> you know, it, it reminds me of that early scene in Matrix Revolutions where they're all standing around a room and everybody is wearing sunglasses. (laughs) Uh, It's it's just, and one thing it made me realize is, well, for one thing, the dialogue was pretty heavy-handed and rough, but, you know, so maybe the show should just be no dialogue. Yeah, yeah, probably. But, But one thing I realized during that scene is having a man in a mask as a lead character, while that works, when everybody in a scene is wearing a mask, it's a bit weird and doesn't work. It's like, I need at least one set of eyes, like one, one set of facial expressions to kind of clue in on. To, to to kind of focus on during those
1: scenes. Yeah, I mean, it just felt very goofy to me. I I, I don't think it helps matters that um you know uh, the, the character who is kind of forging him the armor. Um, that's very much like a video game sequence. And even the fact that we visited her twice, and both times she's kind of said like, "I can make you this new, cool, customizable piece of armor." Like that that is like a Dark Souls sequence. And even the way that it's always kind of been both time so far, it's kind of been this montage of forgery. Um, Again, that's a video game contrivance that I don't think is really working for the show. Now, I will say, um, my other big concern with all the Mandalorian stuff is, uh, you know, James, uh, I've been kind of rewatching the Star Wars prequels uh, over the last couple of weeks, um, writing about them for EW.com. And, Something about the way the Mandalorian society is coming across is just reminding me a lot of the Jedi High Council, where... It's all just very ornate and, you know, they're all kind of in this religion that doesn't honestly seem that interesting to me. The fact that the religion seems to require them all to wear their helmets all the time, I think that's a little laughable, honestly. I mean, and, you know, I worry that the show is treating it with kind of such tremendous... Uh, pageantry that I'm not sure it's really earning. Um, But let's get to, James, the big kind of action set piece of this episode, uh, which is kind of Mando deciding he's not going to go and take down Admiral Akbar's cousin or whoever the new uh, puck object of bounty was going to be that Carl Weathers was giving him. Instead, he rescues uh, the the, the Yoda baby. Um, Talk about that, you know, it sounds like you kind of enjoyed some of the action stuff in episode two a little bit more? How did you feel about this? As Again, this kind of feels like it's the beginning of the show as far as being like, okay, this is what the show is going to be about, him kind of going on the run with this Yoda kid.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you brought up the video game aspect, and maybe it's because I've been playing Fallen Order, but I, I, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of TV that felt more like a video game. It's like he, he completed his mission, he goes and collects his, his, his reward, board, he goes and upgrades his, his armor, and, and then faces off against a boss, you know, it, yeah. it, was, it was, very much, it, you know, I felt like I, you know, I want that PS4 controller in my hand. So, started, <laughs> so I could start taking out some of those, <laughs> some of those other guys on the street. Sometimes with the action scenes in this, um, and there's was a action scene at the end of, um, the premiere that felt the same way. It, it kind of felt like, you know, if you did like, like maybe 10 fewer bad guys, it, it would work better yeah. because there's so many that it just seems so overwhelming and impossible and then you end up kind of going, eh, am, right. am, I, am I on board with this? Am I buying this? And in in some ways it, it would work a little bit better if they didn't make the odds so impossible and insurmountable that when he does overcome them, that you're kind of like going, okay, sure.
1: Well, because I guess the, the, this gets back to something we were talking about in last week's episode, which, which I, uh, as the parent of the room, will now refer to as the ultra-violence corner of our show. Um, it, it's interesting to me that you kind of see the Mandalorian in this episode. He kills more stormtroopers possibly, we'll have to r- 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 run the numbers at some point, but he possibly kills more stormtroopers than anyone ever has done in a single set piece um, followed by an attack by the bounty guild and you know to me it's a little bit of the problem of you know I I think it's a very cool idea that you have the the Mandalorian outfit as this kind of Swiss army attack suit Um, you know I love the idea of you know there's a lot of different weapons that he can use but to your point when each new room he walks into, it's such a series of overwhelming forces and he keeps on overwhelming them. Um, and even you know, uh, the idea of being attacked by the Bounty guild, you know, again, I-, I just worry we're more in prequel territory than people are allowing because you have the Mandalorian and they're a guild and the Bounty hunters and they're a guild, and everyone is kind of following all these rules. It's not necessarily um, the most exciting uh, constant motivations to have people just sort of following a code or away. But stormtroopers can't shoot straight. They never really seem to hit him, or when they do, it just kind of bounces off him. The bounty hunters also can't really seem to shoot straight. So it's just, yeah, to your point exactly, you know, I know there's this feeling that what the show is going for is the kind of space western. And yeah, I'm kind of with you. I'm wondering if there was more a sense of like each action set piece is the Mandalorian facing off against like one other person who's like him, who is incredibly adept at battle. It feels like it'd be maybe a little more, um there'd be just like a little bit more texture to the fighting. As it is, I don't know, even... I think the intention with the final set piece was for you to feel like, oh man, you know, he's really, uh, he's really kind of screwed here. And then suddenly the arrival of, of the jetpack brigade would be kind of a surprise. But I never really felt like he was in trouble, you know? The, the, nothing we've seen so far implies that he can't handle 30 guys firing at him at once. So I, I'm, again, I still kind of have the feeling that this has all been one extended pilot for the show. And so, you know, I am genuinely, as you said, we're kind of coming up on Giancarlo Esposito. We're coming up on a lot of other characters that we know are going to be on the show, finally joining. And I I do kind of wonder, you know, is that kind of what's been missing so far is the feeling of an antagonist or the feeling of someone who genuinely can stop him? Because so far, I mean, weirdly, the only character besides Baby Yoda that I really feel for are like the Pigpen story. Stormtroopers, because they're so pitiful, and I just I, I, I feel sad for these guys who have to wake up every day and look at these suits of armor that used to be so glistening white, and now they can't even afford to like wash wash the dirt off of them. Like you <laughs> know those, but those, those aren't really like threats to the Mandalorian the, the way that you're talking about, right?
0: Right. Right. By the way, I just got an email back from uh, Disney. I had asked who was doing the voice, or maybe the voice and the performance of the uh, hulked-out uh, Mandalorian who Mando fought with. You know, <laughs> the, the one who who had the jetpack at the end. And it's Tate Fletcher, who is a MMA fighter and who's also in Breaking Bad and Westworld. Oh, so there a, we go. little little, little factoid breaking news
1: there. Uh, I'm not sure that we heard his name, so I'll just refer to him as as Butch Boba until I am uh, told otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I, I, I will say, though, uh, lest everyone just think that we're ragging on Mandalorian, Carl Weathers saying, no pucks for you. Uh, is a very high point of the show for me. That uh, That's the T-shirt that I want printed out, is no pucks for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, well, James, do you, do you we want to move on to uh, Rise of Skywalker because we have uh, talk, a bit to cover there? L-
1: let's talk what's going on with Rise of Skywalker, James, because you are our man in the galaxy far, far away. Uh, you know, I, I hope everyone checks out the new issue of, of EW because it's such a celebration of really everything kind of in Star Wars history. Um, um, but can you talk a little bit about what we can expect from Rise of Skywalker, um, you know, as, as far as, like, uh, stuff that is in the future and, and, and maybe even stuff that kind of uh, goes beyond what, what people can see in print? Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, these stories are always tricky because everyone is told not to tell you anything. And, but luckily, Daisy Ridley has a terrific interview, and J.J. Abrams, while being super secretive about plot stuff, he's, he's a man who understands he needs to give you something to write. And he's, he, he's great at doing that, especially when you ask Questions that are kind of, you know, within the ballpark of, of, of what he can a- answer, like, you know, things like uh, we, we from what we've seen in, in the previews, you know, in the trailers, how much of, of, of the story do we know so far? And he was talking about how how it's the trailers are going to scratch the surface of what the movie is and uh, how their whole action scenes that that we haven't even seen any footage or photos uh, from yet. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because, you know, they're obviously trying to wrap up 40, you know, what, 42 years now mm-hmm. of Star Wars storytelling in, in one film. Um, so what we know about it is we know it's been a, at least a year since the events in The Last Jedi. First Order has decimated the Resistance. Uh, Rey has been training to use the Force. Um, Finn and Poe have been sent by uh, Leah to find allies throughout the galaxy and so far haven't had any luck. And so they're, they're basically trying to, as Oscar Isaac put it, put band aids on the leaking ship of this resistance. And uh, another thing interesting thing about this is Finn, Poe and Ray are going to work together, which is weirdly, you know, you know never happened before. I mean, uh, you know JJ mentioned at one point in the interview that, that uh, that that Ray and and, and Poe had only literally had like one scene together in in the two previous films, and that was when they first met. Um, so, you know, to have the three leads kind of working together for the first time, uh, they're trying to go for some original trilogy vibes um, there, and uh, also since there's a time jump, it gives the production sort of an opportunity to. Um, you know, bring the characters along further than when we first seen them. Their relationships with each other, you know, their 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 abilities and uh, and the things that, that 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 they're about have kind of changed since we lost last saw them. So so expect that to play out as well.
1: I'm really intrigued by all of this. I think it's interesting you mentioning that this is kind of the first time in a major way that the three sort of you know leads of this trilogy are kind of interacting together. Um, in rewatching the original trilogy, it struck me that having Han. Leia, and Luke all together in the same place was a little bit more rare than I remembered. I mean, you obviously have all the great stuff towards the end of uh, the first movie, Empire Strikes Back. They're very much disparate the whole time although ultimately you know they're kind of reunifying as the kind of final act or the the attempted reunification and then really it's only in Return of the Jedi that there's like we're on a full mission here together and then Luke immediately leaves so it's interesting to think of you know it's not unusual to have that kind of disparate thing going on with a Star Wars narrative but it's cool to think of that all coming together you've had some great uh, kind of chats that have been posted uh, James just talking to Daisy Ridley and is it fair to say that, like, I, I, I have to say, in going into Force Awakens, um, I was not expecting the whole thing about Rey's parents to still be a mystery we were talking about so many years later, but it's been interesting kind of seeing how she's kind of approached it in conversation with you. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what people can maybe expect out of that, or, or what we kind of think we know uh, about what's going on with that in Rise of Skywalker?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, in Last Jedi, Rey's parents were revealed to be deceased. You know, nobodies, filthy junk traders who sold you off for drinking money, as as Kylo Ren put it. And it, it was a very controversial idea. And I, what I liked about it is I liked the idea that it kind of went against the the Disney princess trope, right? It's, it's it went against the idea that a hero, it, 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 you know, it, it embraced the idea that a hero doesn't need to come. From somebody special in order to, to, to be somebody special, um, yet uh, many fans thought it kind of you know cheated a bit because the you know, Ray's identity was teased as being crucial from the start. You know, their their you know who's the girl, as as as, as Maz put it, and her saying classified. Yeah, me too. Big secret. Uh, you know about her identity to BB8 when when they first met. Um, and, of course, all, also all her, her, her force powers, too. I mean, clearly this is somebody that, uh, that is, is important somehow. Um, so, you know, Daisy Ridley uh, said that uh, the parents thing is not satisfied for her or, and for the audience. That's something she's still trying to figure out. Where does she come from? And part of the reason it sounds like in the story, she needs to figure it out to figure out what she's going to do next. So mm-hmm. apparently... Um, you know her 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 backstory isn't just simply a thing that is going to get filled in along the way but is a but is central to the plot in terms of driving the story forward in terms of what she has to do and we you know one thing I asked is you know because I think people have been curious whether you know J.J. J. Abrams is making a course correction to Last Jedi or whether this is the plan all along. Like, was Ryan Johnson's plan for Last Jedi supposed to be, you know, the, end, the final word on her parentage, or was there always more to, to reveal? So I was, and one thing that kind of bothered me about the idea of changing course is that Last Jedi scene seemed very sincere. It seemed like this is what they, they meant. That it seemed like it played as if Kylo Ren was telling the truth, and she believed he was telling the truth. And so that was another question I had for her is whether that scene was supposed to be sincere. And, and she was like, yes, it was supposed to be sincere. That's the way that they were trying to play it. Um, and, you know, she put it, you know, it, it's not that she doesn't believe it, but she feels there's more to the story. So I think that's what they're going to do. It's like what we've heard before is not untrue but it just not might be true. It just might be true from, as Obi-Wan once put it, from a certain point of view.
1: Yeah, we'll be talking about all this stuff uh, you know, episode coming up where we dive a little bit deeper into Last Jedi and then of course when we all kind of come back and discuss uh, Rise of of Skywalker, but I do hope that everyone checks out the issue and all your kind of great reporting, James. Um, One thing that I'm really obsessing over this week is uh, as part of our kind of broader look at the Star Wars franchise, you had an incredible look at the scene that for me... I mean, as much as there are other scenes that are awesome in Star Wars, there's one scene that for me just taps into the absolutely primal, what kind of space operatic action can this franchise create feeling? And that of course is uh, the Death Star trench scene. Um, You kind of went a little bit uh, behind the scenes with uh, Dennis Murin, who had uh, done so much work on the special effects of that scene. And what I love about the piece, James, and I I hope everyone uh, checks it out, is that it really gets into something that I felt rewatching that scene a few weeks ago, which is that you just feel it viscerally in a way that is is not true of so many other, you know, in scale, much larger action scenes that have followed in its wake. Um, and he had a lot of, I thought, really interesting things to talk about as far as why that might be the case. What is still so special about it so many years later?
0: Yeah, we really went down the trench rabbit hole uh, on 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 this, and yeah, it, that scene's always impressed me that way too. It's so well shot. It's so well edited. The editing in it is just like, you know, it something that you would show in an editing class for, for how to edit an action scene. Um, and it's long, you know, a lot of uh, the action scenes you know, we get now nowadays are, are much tighter. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's about, you know, 11, 12 minutes from, from, from start to finish. Wow. And, and it's also crucial, you know, a lot of the star Wars action scenes that we've seen since um, you know, Intercut like one action scene taking place one place with another. You know, that's just sort of sort of now a common Star Wars thing to do. It's like you'll have multiple action scenes. You'll be intercutting between them. And it, you know, I can't tell you how much the Darth Maul fight is is weakened by cutting back to Jar Jar Banks on Naboo and Anakin Skywalker in <laughs> in his little toy fighter, um, watching the Darth Maul uh, fight uh, you know uncut on on YouTube. You know, where they have ones where they they just sort of cut out all the all the cutaways. It's so much better. It's not even funny. So I, I think having that that strict focus on it matters too. But yeah, he, yeah, he fully agreed that it holds up in many ways better than things that we have seen now so many years later, uh, even though it was just made with like, you know, these dinky models put together in like a sweltering Van (laughs) Eyes warehouse in in 1976, made from like toy model parts and using, you know, you know, know, cameras that, 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 that were really, you know, just, just sort of, you know, nascent technology in terms of doing this and without any, um, you know digital effects at all and and cobbling that all together in, in, the, in the crudest of, of manner compared to, to the way things are done now and you know he talked about some of the reasons why um, you know they're different he talked about how in CG you'll have different people animating different things so you'll have one person doing a background you'll have another person doing a ship you might have another person doing another ship and then it all gets kind of cobbled together so the person doing one thing doesn't have that sort of innate connection to the other thing. Uh, Whereas with this, you know, he was shooting everything himself, Um, you know, and also he talked about CG models. There's so many problems that, that they still have with them from not having the right sheen on them to not having the right scale, the shading. He says, edges are like a really difficult problem. There's a constant problem with computer graphics in terms of making the edges too sharp and with models, as things get further away, there's this natural blurring uh, that happens and, and, and a way the thing is getting less distinct. That's really difficult to perfectly do correctly with computer graphics. Um, and another thing is he spent a lot of time and attention with the camera, you know trying to figure out how, how to give weight to the camera as it was moving and how to make the ships Feel like they're flying and banking like real airplanes, which doesn't even make sense, really, because obviously there, there's no no atmosphere in, in space. But you're, you're trying to connect it to, to something that that feels real. And, you know, he was trying to very much follow the laws of physics, inertia and weight. And that's something that you know, some people when doing computer animation, when you have a shop of all these people doing all these different elements and then they cobble it all together, that doesn't necessarily happen.
1: Um, yeah, James, Um you know, you actually have uh, in kind of gif form one of the best shots in movie history, which comes from the Death Star trench scene, which is So like, great they used it twice. Which is the, the, the POV of the X-Wing fighter going from this like wide expanse up above the trench down into the trench. And I mean, you know, again, I was rewatching this a few weeks ago on a VHS tape that is about as old as I am. And just the wow factor that is still attached to that is so remarkable. Um, one thing that is interesting, uh, also that I, I had someone un- not really come across in all my, as a kid reading up on the making of the movie. Um, but, uh, in your discussions with Murin, he revealed that there were, there were more than one, well, in, in many ways, both behind the scenes and in the reality of Star Wars, there were many more than just one trench on uh, the Death Star, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is confusing and just, you know, Pretty geeky, but you know it, it's such an iconic thing in, in the film that that's interesting to dive into. That basically, first of all, uh, when you look at the Death Star from a distance, you see that one clear, obvious meridian trench that goes around the the equatorial line of the, the Death Star, and everybody assumes that that's the same trench that they do the bombing run in. At the end, but it's not. Uh, that trench is the the very huge, wide trench that the Millennium Falcon gets, you know, tractor beam dragged into midway through the film, and so you you see how huge that is, and actually, and and it's made more confusing by there are shots showing you know the X Wings going towards that main trench uh, in the attack at the end, but uh, you know even though you don't see this there, there are technically apparently 18 different trenches uh, along the surface of the death star. And that is, and, and and the one that you see in the film with that, they angle into and, uh, and fly to, up to the exhaust port. That is one near the you know, mysterious North pole of, of, of the death star <laughs> that, 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 that we've never really seen like a really clear exterior shot of, um, you know, that puts it into any kind of perspective. So, in the script, originally, um, there were multiple trenches, apparently, and, uh, and the special effects team made multiple trenches for the X-Wings to fly through. So the idea was, and they shot like test footage of this as well, so the idea was the X-Wings would be in, in, in a very wide trench to begin with, and then the trench would get narrower, and then it would get narrower still uh, for, for the final run. And somewhere along the line, the decision was made, you know, screw it, let's just use the narrowest trench because that's the one that looks best <laughs> because it, it's it, what you have is you end up with the effect of the walls flying by on the side, you know, and it gives you a sense of things going faster. It makes the ships, you know, are like all tighter in there so it's tougher to maneuver. And it also reduces how much you look at the textures because, The textures are just, like, you know, kind of insane and and repetitive. It's, you know, especially when you look at the surface of the Death Star. You know, one of the things that Muir admitted is that the Death Star surface is kind of silly when you look at it. It's (laughs) like this endless sea of, of like, Lego-like buildings. And and it's not supposed to be studied. You know, it's basically to give you cues as, as to how fast uh, the ships are moving. As he put it, you don't have to understand it. The Empire understood it when they made it. Right, So right, right. So, well, just, so, it is, so, so don't overthink it. I mean, it, it, it uh, is
1: just, to me, I mean, it's it's the perfect kind of fantasy creation where, I mean, as a especially as a kid looking at the Death Star from afar, you're kind of like, yeah, like, it's kind of buildings, it's kind of blocks, it's kind of machinery. Like, you know, it, it, it it's kind of, and to me, this is like kind of the definition of fantasy, Versus science fiction is like it's something that like looks really cool on the horizon, kind of. And th- th- that's what I, what I was going kind to of associate that sort of, you know, the, the gritty texture of uh, the Death Star with. And I, I loved, but I, I had never really realized that originally there was going to be more of a sense of like these different trenches closing in. It certainly is super effective, and I'm sure probably also sort of said co- cost effective for them to be like, we'll just go to the cool one right away. <laughs> we don't need to right. do quite as much of a kind of build up here. (laughs) Um, James, uh, you know, everything about that piece was so great, but I also liked that uh, you made a point of calling out uh, the editing work of uh, Marsha Lucas, who, of course, was George Lucas's wife at the time, because just the crispness of the editing in that sequence and even the way that, um, you know with each X-Wing pilot, you kind of go on this brief journey with them from like meeting them, to them doing something kind of cool, to them going into the trench, to most of them dying. It's just it's an interesting thing to think about what kind of is effective cross-cutting, to go back to something you were saying a second ago. You know, we're not kind of cutting around all these different, different plot lines. Each plot line is kind of deepening the overall story because of course the climax is going to be our favorite X-Wing fighter, Luke Skywalker, doing something that has resulted in everybody else dying. So I just, I love, the you know, being able to kind of call that out and just all the kind of technical efforts that went into that sequence. Um, It's such a great kind of celebration of that uh, awesome scene.
0: Yeah, and and all those cockpits, all the X-Wing cockpits were the same cockpit. The same cockpit! It was was one cockpit and they had like... (laughs) They had the actors, like, sitting on folding chairs outside of it, just, like, waiting for their turn in the cockpit. And it was so hot that they were, like, wearing, like, shorts and sandals, like, from the waist down. So, 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 so when you're pitching those guys, they all have, like, Bermuda shorts and, like, flip-flops on while, while, while doing their, their bombing runs and just, like, you know, taking their turn in the X-Wing cockpit.
1: It's such It's such a different kind of creative process when it's like, okay, we need to differentiate these guys. We only have one cockpit. And they're all wearing the same outfit, but they're all going to have really cool personalized helmets. So like like th- that's the one thing you can say about about all of about all of Red Team is you know, there, there's the checkerboard guy, there's the guy, you know, there's Biggs with his mustache. Um, but uh, it's it, it's such a treat to read. I, I hope everybody checks that out online. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been ranting at me about it all week. You're playing this video game. You know that I have have no time in my, in my busy schedule for playing video games now, so fill me in. What are you enjoying about uh, this awesome new Star Wars game that you are all about now?
0: Well, I'm glad we saved the best for last because there's nothing more interesting than to hear somebody talk about a video game they're playing. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm sure this will be the point that, you know, if we had some sort of graphical treatment of people listening to the podcast that, that the listenership just plummets. Um, yeah. I mean, look, we both played like Dark Forces and Jedi Knight as kids and you know these great single player Star Wars adventure games. Um, and it's just amazing looking back on that. that something with such crude graphics on like a 12 inch PC modder with this dinky Casio Nokia phone like Star <laughs> Wars tune soundtrack. that something like that can be so immersive. And, and look, I'm not a gamer. I usually play like one game per year on the holidays when I have more free time because I don't have a wife, you know. But I, So it's like I'm far from an expert on this. But the, the last big Star Wars game title, Battlefront 2, to me kind of felt like your basic military game, but just with a Star Wars skin in a lot of yeah. ways. And this game feels a lot more like, like classic Star Wars. It, it's, it's, there's a lot of expo, exploration of, like, temples and ruins with a mix of technology and these... It isolated extreme environments. The pacing is great. I mean, um, you know, you're not constantly fighting. There's a lot of exploration and puzzle solving. It's got humor. You know, you talked about uh, the, the, the feeling sorry for the stormtroopers in, in Mando. You know, you know, eavesdropping on disgruntled stormtroopers, you know, continue <laughs> to be one of you know, the best joys of playing these games. And... <laughs> And it's one of those ones where you start playing and you're immediately like, oh, I hope they release an expansion pack because I'm going to want to, more of this. I played, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because I, and it's, I too, it's like I look online, I see people going like, oh, I played through the whole thing in three and a half hours. I'm just like, where is the fun in that? I haven't played through a whole level in three and a half hours. I'm just like poking around. And you know, you know, you know, you swing around on on, on vines and like you know, killing stormtroopers uh-huh. and like you know, interacting with weird aliens and stuff. So it's 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 an absolute blast. Can you I talk? Think.
1: Can you talk a bit about because um, you know you mentioned a couple of classic uh, video games, D- Dark Forces, and how it kind of led into the whole kind of Jedi Knight series. I have a really fond place in my heart for Shadows of the Empire, which was like the super blockhead n sixty four, the uh, Wampas, the, the Wampas, and uh, the the. the the, the, the truly terrifying swamp sequence where you find out that like, the Dianoga from the trash compactor is secretly a like, gigantic underwater horror squid, HP Lovecraft monster. Um, but in, in this one, because uh, it, it's called Fallen Order, do you kind of have like Jedi powers from the start, your character, or, or, or is it is it like Jedi Knight where you're kind of gradually building up into some, some interesting newer kind of Jedi abilities?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's about a, uh, a Jedi apprentice um, who uh, you know, and, and this takes place years after um, the Order sixty six w- w- was done and everybody was wiped out. So, so he was just sort of. You know, in the early stages of of training to to be a Jedi when he had to go into hiding and is working at a shipwrecking scrapyard, you know, know, taking apart like 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 star destroyers and stuff. So basically he's lost his connection to the force at the beginning and he gradually, uh, you know, re-earns that through the course of the storyline. Like I'm like, you know, many hours into it and I just got you know, force push finally, and I'm, like, thrilled. So (laughs) it it makes you kind of gradually re-earn each ability instead of just kind of throwing them at you.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was nothing better in the Jedi Knight games than the force push. That was just a deeply, deeply Especially the group force
0: push. Yeah. Just, like, you know...
1: And, yeah. and James, a, a, am I right in saying that the character that you're kind of playing it was performance captured by my personal favorite Joker of the last 10 years, uh, the the a dude from uh, Gotham whose name is totally escaping me now?
0: Yes, is it... Is it uh
1: Cameron Monaghan, Kevin C- Monaghan, yeah, yeah, there we go. Yes, also yeah. known from from, from 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 Shameless, he's he's one of my new favorites for for all yeah. kinds of things. So yeah, I, he he
0: plays a very affable, likable young Jedi. Uh
1: huh, uh huh. Well, we, we need more affable likability in, in this franchise. Um, James, uh, I'll, I'll get to fall in Order at some point. Um, uh, that about wraps it up for this week's episode of uh, Star Wars Untold Stories. Uh, we are on an exciting ongoing mission here. Coming up, we're going to have some some chats about. Revenge of the Sith, some chats about Last Jedi. We are going to go in deep with Rise of Skywalker uh, when the film comes out. Uh, But we do want to hear from everybody out there. He's on Twitter at James Hibbard. I'm on Twitter at Darren Franich. If you like what you're hearing, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Give us a review. We'd love to hear what we can do better. We're covering a broad swath of Star Wars stuff here because there is a lot of Star Wars to be discussed right now. Uh, And we do want to continue uh, exploring the galaxy far, far away for better or for worse Uh, so you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts on Spotify on radio.com mentioned Apple Podcasts already Uh, thanks as always to James Hibbert our man of the galaxy far far away Uh, I'm Darren Fradich and I have spoken